vision that John saw of the eternal state. Lord, we realize that though it's the end, it's just the beginning. And that even the lives that we're living now are being lived in preparation for the glorious day when time fades into eternity and we spend our forever with you. Bless us tonight, Lord. Strengthen our faith. Stretch our vision as we study the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. During the wedding at Cana, Jesus turned the water into wine. And of course, the party's host was quite amazed. But not with the miracle, mind you. Rather, he was surprised with the break in custom. At first, he wasn't even aware of the miracle. He didn't know that the wine that he was drinking had just moments earlier been water. What was amazing to him was that the best tasting wine had been saved to last. And in John chapter 2 verse 10, he remarks, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. And here's the point for us tonight. It is God's custom to save the best for last. And that's what we find here in Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22. The grandest glories, the greater amazements, the most magnificent miracles are saved for the end of time. Chapter 20, verse 1 begins. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Remember in chapter 19, Jesus has returned to earth, and he has destroyed the armies of the Antichrist. The flesh of those who followed the beast has now been fed to vultures. Then Jesus locked up the Antichrist and the false prophet, threw them into the bottomless pit. His victory now is total. He has purchased the earth on the cross, and now he has taken possession with his second coming. Guys, Jesus will return to this earth to establish his forever kingdom. At the end of the great tribulation, man's dominion over the earth will be over, and Jesus will inaugurate a new period of human history. He'll rule the earth literally and physically and visibly. His throne will be in Jerusalem and all the world will bow down before him and obey him. As we're told in chapter 19, verse 15, he himself will rule the world with a rod of iron. You remember in the model prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here in Revelation 20, that prayer has finally been answered. God's kingdom does come. His will prevails on earth as it always has been in heaven. And note John records the duration of God's kingdom on the earth. It will last a period of 1,000 years. Or in the Latin, it's the translation of the word millennium. After great destruction, the earth will enjoy a golden age for 1,000 years or millennium The earth will be restored to its original beauty. It will again become a paradise. Remember, Adam and Eve began in a garden called Eden. 
the earth will once again end up a garden paradise. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, 23. They tell us that all creation is now groaning, longing for its redemption. Well, when Jesus returns, the curse will be lifted and planet Earth will be restored. Revelation 20 only provides for us the duration of Jesus' millennial kingdom. It lasts a thousand years. But there are a whole host of Old Testament prophecies that provide us other details. The quality of life, the changes in the earth's ecosystem, the lifestyle of folks who live in the kingdom age. Remember, one of the plagues in the Great Tribulation is the poisoning of the waters. Whereas Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 8 and 9 describe how those waters will be healed and how they will be rejuvenated. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 23 through 26 tells us that there will be longer periods of sunshine that will revitalize the planet's vegetation, all that's been wiped out through the great tribulation. Isaiah 11 verse 6 describes how God will remove the hostility that exists now between the animals. It says the wolf will also dwell with the lamb. Verse 8 of Isaiah 11 describes how God will remove the hostility that now exists between animals and man. We're told the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. No longer will man need to fear the animals. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 tell us that there'll be no birth defects during this period of time. Isaiah 65 verse 20 comments on the lifespans of people who live in the kingdom age. We're told that a man a hundred years old will be considered a mere child. And the best benefit of living in the kingdom age will be the access that a person has to Jesus. Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 says that people will flow to Jerusalem and Jesus will teach them his ways. Verse 4 says, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Under Jesus' influence, the world will finally know peace. And the peace, understand, won't just be nationally, it'll be locally, it'll be personally. In the millennium, there'll be no need for deadbolts or security systems. There'll be no crime. For one reason, there'll be no Satan. For during this time, he'll be chained for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. The other reason is that Jesus won't tolerate it. He will enforce righteousness and he will punish evil swiftly. He will reign and rule over the entire earth. In verse 4, John sees the people here who, during the Great Tribulation, refused to worship the beast and rejected his mark. And as a result, they were beheaded for their faith in Jesus. We're told at the end of verse 4, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Understand that we too, the church, will also reign with Christ during this period. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 Luke chapter 19, verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, are just a few of the verses that teach that the raptured church will also return with Jesus and help to administer his kingdom here on earth. Both the raptured saints and the tribulation saints will help Jesus rule during his kingdom. During the kingdom age, a strange mix of people will occupy planet earth. Mortal men will live alongside of resurrected believers, you and I. The humans who survived the great tribulation will once again repopulate the earth. Their offspring will retain a sin nature. 
And even without the devil's influence, from time to time, they'll need to be corrected. The resurrected saints will have glorified bodies and redeemed spirits. will have the supernatural capabilities that Jesus had after his resurrection. You and I won't be confined materially and spatially. Like Jesus, after his resurrection, we'll pass through walls. We'll travel at the speed of desire. You know, that's pretty fast. Want to go to Hawaii? Just think it and you're there. We'll have those kinds of capabilities. Verse 5 tells us, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection occurs before the 1,000 years begins. It's the resurrection of the righteous. The first resurrection actually began with Jesus and his resurrection. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. It continues before the tribulation with the rapture, and then it closes when the martyred saints are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. But those who reject Jesus, they continue to suffer in Hades for the duration of these 1,000 years. They aren't resurrected until the end of this period when they stand before the great white throne of judgment and receive their permanent sentence. That's the second resurrection that gets talked about in verse 11. Chapter 20, verse 3, closes on an ominous note. When he spoke of Satan's imprisonment, John added... But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And verse 8 of chapter 20 tells us why. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. After the 1,000 years in Hades, Satan still lies and stirs up a rebellion on the earth. He is let loose for a short season. Understand, during the millennium, as before Noah's flood, people will live long ages, up to a thousand years. And this will allow the skeleton crew of survivors who make it through the great tribulation to repopulate the earth. The earth may have as many people on it at the end of the thousand years as it does today. And among the survivors and their descendants, Satan will manage to stir up a sizable rebellion. He gathers together a people to once again fight against God. And why does God allow for this to happen? After a thousand years of peace and prosperity prosperity and wonderful harmony on the earth, why this final insurrection? There is an important reason for this. You see, the Bible teaches that man sins because he's a sinner. The fact that you sin don't make you a sinner. What makes you a sinner is that you're born in sin. You are a sinner. That's why you sin. Our problem lies deeper than our behavior. Our very nature is corrupt. Whereas modern psychology denies this truth. And it blames man's deviance on a deficient environment. Hey, man is corrupt because his environment is corrupt. Men and women resort to evil because they lack resources or they lack education or they lack proper culture. But here, mankind lives in a perfect, flawless environment for a thousand years. Jesus has taken care of their every need. They've been given the best in provision and education and civilization. And yet, when given the choice, man still chooses to do evil. 
Isn't that interesting? I believe God allows this to happen in order to silence the excuses that are being offered up in hell today. Can you imagine if you could turn on the loud the speaker down in hell and hear what was going on down there? And all of the excuses that are being offered today. If I just had a better education. If I had just been raised in a Christian home. If I had just had two parents. If I wasn't on welfare. If I didn't grow up in the housing projects. But at the end of the thousand years, God is going to allow this rebellion to take place so that he in turn can turn to those people and say, wait a minute. No, the reason you're there, the reason you've sinned, it has nothing to do with your environment. It has to do with your heart. There was sin in your heart. You failed to repent. You failed to receive my provision for your sin. What happens at the end of these thousand years is once and for all proof that at the heart of man's problem is the problem in his heart. We are rebels from birth. And that's why we need to be, in order to be a part of God's kingdom, Jesus said, we have to be born again. Of course, Jesus puts down this final insurrection in short order. And when the rebels surround Jerusalem, fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And in verse 10, John reveals the devil's final destination. We're told the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Greek word translated lake of fire or Gehenna is different from the word that gets translated in other places as Hades. Hades is simply the holding tank for the unbelieving dead at the center of the earth. The lake of fire is the final destination of the rebellious. And a little later, we'll find that Hades was cast in the end into the lake of fire. In verse 11, John sees a colossal sight. He sees the end of the world as we know it. He saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. After the kingdom age and this final attempted coup d'etat, God dispenses with the old order and he ushers in the new. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 describes the meltdown of the universe that will take place at this time. Peter writes, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Guys, one day it is all going to burn. That's why you shouldn't be putting your trust in combustibles. That's why you shouldn't live for flammables. Only the blessings of Jesus are truly heat resistant. That's where you need to put your trust. But more vital to John than the atomic incineration that extinguishes all matter. You'd think that'd be a big event. But more important to him than that is the great white throne that he sees in heaven. For he says in chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the great white throne of judgment. One of four different judgments in the Bible. The first judgment was at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Their sin was judged in the body of our Lord Jesus. Jesus got what I deserved. Jesus got what you deserved. Trust in Jesus and your sin has already been judged. It was judged on the cross. The second judgment, though, is at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here the issue is not sin, but service. Our motivation will be tested. Works done out of love for God will be rewarded, but things done selfishly will be burned up. The third judgment occurs in the valley of Jehoshaphat at the return of Jesus. Joel chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 25 describe how Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. The people who are alive at the end of the age, who survived the great tribulation, they will be separated and judged. The sheep are the righteous on one hand and the goats are the unrighteous on the other hand. And then the fourth judgment that occurs in Scripture is the one that's mentioned here, the great white throne of judgment. Understand, this is not for believers in Jesus. In Revelation chapter 4, the believers were gathered around a throne surrounded by a rainbow, a symbol of God's faithfulness. Four living creatures, each representing different elements of the work of Christ, are also present. Numerous features of the throne speak of God's mercy and God's judgment and God's grace. Not His judgment, but His grace. But not here. That's in Revelation 4. That's the throne around which the saints have gathered. But here, this is a stark white throne. Rather than representing God's grace, this throne represents His judgment, His holiness. Remember, if you're in Christ, your sin was judged at the cross. But notice here in verse 12, people here are judged according to their works. Hey, I don't know about you, but the last thing I ever want to happen is to get judged according to my works. I don't have a leg to stand on and neither do you. For the Bible says that even our good works, even our righteousnesses as are as of filthy rags. If I'm judged according to my works, man, I'm in serious trouble. That's why I'm resting not in my work, but in the work of Jesus Christ. Here, though, those who had rejected Jesus are now being judged according to their works at the great white throne of judgment. Verse 14 tells us that in the end, Hades and its inhabitants are thrown into the lake of fire. Hades, remember, was the holding tank. Gehenna is the final punishment. We're told this is the second death. Physical death is the first death. But the lake of fire, eternal damnation, is the second death. Always remember the old saying, born once, die twice. But born twice, die only once. That's why you need to be born again. In chapter 21, verse 1. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Understand this universe is not eternal. Matter is not eternal. It will come to an end and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, there the Lord says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The Hebrew word translated create or bara means to create out of nothing. 
God will start over again with an entirely new heaven and new earth. You know, people today are into recycling. People recycle paper, they recycle metal, plastic, even motor oil. Everything is being recycled. My wife recycles newspapers and milk cartons. You know, I have mixed feelings. Yes, I suppose that we're no longer polluting the earth. But in the process, we're really cluttering up and polluting my garage. And I guess I just can't get too gung-ho over recycling. But you know, it comforts me to know that God also doesn't really care much for recycling. For this earth is a no-deposit, no-return planet. God isn't going to recycle this earth. He's designed an entirely new heaven and a new earth. A new world that will resemble the old in many respects, but it will have an entirely new molecular makeup and composition. You know, when we think about the past and what conditions were like in the past, we can make pretty accurate assumptions until we reach two impasses. Two events serve as walls, as barriers that are difficult to see over and examine what life was like before they were erected. The first wall was the flood of Noah. The global flood made dramatic alterations in the earth's ecosystem. What life was like before Noah is difficult for us to even understand. We can pretty much understand what it was like from Noah to today. But prior to Noah, from the condition, what conditions were like from Adam to Noah are, are really quite a mystery to us. The second wall, looking back into the past, is the fall of man. And if you think our understanding is vague and hazy before the flood, it becomes even more so before sin entered into the universe. Sin has so permeated our environment that it's impossible for fallen minds and fallen imaginations to comprehend what life was like before the world's contamination. Adam and Eve lived in a utopia that it's hard for us to even grasp. Now, When we think into the future, we also do quite well imagining how life will change and develop until we reach two walls. The first quantum leap forward in the history of the universe is the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. It boggles the mind to imagine what conditions will be like when Jesus rules a redeemed earth from his throne in Jerusalem. But the second barrier in our understanding that's even more difficult for us to grasp is the creation of this new heaven and new earth. Here we can only stand with dropped jaw and gaping mouth and just wonder. John is here trying to help children of time grasp the realities of eternity. In chapter 21, verse 2, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In John 14, verse 2, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And we can assume 
that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been preparing us a place. The carpenter has been hard at work building for us a heavenly home. Now we see it coming down from heaven, out of heaven, coming down from God. It is as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. This city is decked out. It's dressed to please. You know, I've never met a groom who was disappointed with his bride on his wedding day. And I've done a lot of, lot of weddings. I've never met a guy who stood down here in this altar and say, looked up the aisle and saw his bride coming down adorned in that white gown and all pretty up and said, Oh, what a letdown. <laughs> never seen that. Never even heard anything close to that. Boy, when you look up that aisle and you see your bride walking down that aisle, it is the most exciting experience of your life. She never looks better than when she appears on your wedding day. This is how he sees the New Jerusalem. There is no disappointment. There's total satisfaction. There's total peace. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever laid eyes on. You won't be disappointed with your heavenly home. Trust me. If you think that there's some aspect of life that you might miss if the rapture were to take place tomorrow, forget it. Eternity will more than compensate. The eternal city will more than satisfy your every desire. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham refused to settle down and make this earth his home. He longed for eternity. He longed for the city of God. It was said of Abraham and his descendants, they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you desire a better? That is a heavenly country. And here is that city. Coming down out of heaven from God. But John not only sees, he hears a loud voice from heaven saying in verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You've heard of its streets of gold. You've heard of its pearly gates. But heaven's chief feature is God himself. Verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, according to Isaiah 65, verse 20, the millennial, in the millennial kingdom, death will be rare, but it will be existent. Here, though, death is finally abolished. No more undertakers, no more grave diggers. There'll be no cemeteries on the new earth. Death is finally dead. Recently, I heard of a tombstone that simply reads, I told you I was sick. (laughs) Apparently, no one heeded his warning. Which reminds me of a gravestone in Richmond, Virginia, where the body of Margaret Daniels is buried. Its inscription reads, She always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. (laughs) Hey, sin has created a fallen world that makes us vulnerable to sickness and to pain and to death and to heartache. You see, the cause of death is sin. But here in chapter 21, sin is no more. And now the results of sin can finally be abolished. They can be dealt with. Grief is gone. 
Tears dry up. Psalm 30 verse 5 proves true. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And now the morning has come. Jesus says in verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. And in verse 6, John, Jesus says to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You see, the new Jerusalem is the city of life. Within it, we find the fountain of life and the tree of life and the river of life. Its citizens are written, names, its citizens' names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why if you want to enjoy eternal life, make sure you're a citizen of this heavenly city. And John says in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, and here he goes on to list those who won't inherit heaven. This is important. Note the list. He says the cowardly won't inherit heaven. Notice cowardice is not a weakness. It's a sin. There is no excuse for a Christian to be a coward. A yellow streak is a sign of a lack of faith. The list, though, continues. Unbelieving. Abominable. Murderers. Sexually immoral. Sorcerers. The Greek word is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. Literally, drug dealers or drug abusers. Idolaters. He says, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Guys, there will be people in heaven who have lied or who have took drugs in their past or who were guilty of immoral acts in their past, but they have repented and they have been changed by the power of God. Those excluded from heaven are the unrepentant and the habitual sinners. In chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, the angel shows John the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. He describes the glory of the city in verse 11. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, possibly a diamond, clear as crystal. Imagine a huge glimmering diamond floating down out of the heavens. I believe that what we know of as heaven today is actually this new Jerusalem that's spoken of here. The spiritual realm will suddenly materialize. It will arrive to us from God out of the heavens or out of space. It will hover over the earth. And then the new Jerusalem will lock into a parallel orbit with the new earth. The holy city will then become sort of a celestial satellite revolving around the new new earth. You've heard of the Great Wall of China. Well, here, there's also a Great Wall in heaven. The city around the New Jerusalem, we're told it has 12 gates, each named after one of the tribes of Israel. And it has 12 foundations, each one named after one of the 12 apostles. Verse 16 gives us the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, or heaven, The city is laid out as a square, John says. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 
Now, this is a huge city. 12,000 furlongs is the equivalent of about 1,500 miles. And so imagine a city with a base of 1,500 square miles. In the upper right-hand corner, you could put Boston, Massachusetts. The other three corners would then become Miami, Florida, Phoenix, Arizona, and Calgary, Canada. This one city would cover about three-quarters of the area of the United States. This is a city two and a quarter million square miles. But the most mind-boggling dimension of the height of this new Jerusalem is its, is its height. The most mind-boggling dimension is its height because its height is also 1,500 miles. Now consider that today the earth's atmosphere extends only 600 miles above the earth. That means if set down on the earth today, the new Jerusalem would extend 900 miles out into outer space. More of it would be above the atmosphere than below the atmosphere. The size of the new Jerusalem would be just a little smaller than the moon. That's quite a big city, isn't it? Imagine, too, a city with a three-dimensional living space. Its inhabitants live not just at its base, but throughout the entire structure. This would increase its living space to three billion square miles. I think more than big enough for the saved throughout the ages. We know the city's dimensions, but we don't know the shape of the New Jerusalem. And of course, this has raised much speculation. Some Bible teachers believe the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a dome, others in the shape of a sphere or a cube or even a pyramid. Whatever the exact shape, we know that this city is enormous. Verse 18 tells us, The construction of its wall was as of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The gold is so pure, it's transparent. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And note the colors in heaven. Jasper, perhaps a diamond, maybe a greenish stone. Sapphire, which of course is blue. Chalcedony, which is aqua. Emerald, or bright green. Sardonx, a brownish red. Sardius, a deep blood red. Chrysolite, a yellow Burl, another green. Topaz, a yellowish green. Chrysosprus, which was an apple green. Jaseth, violet. And amethyst, a blue-red or a rich purple. It's interesting that five of the twelve colors are some shade of green. If you're going to heaven, you better get used to green, I guess. Heaven is going to be a kaleidoscope of color, though. It's going to be a rainbow. It's going to be the most colorful place you've ever seen. Verse 21 notes the pearly gates. And the street of the city was pure gold, he says. But notice, it's not streets, plural. It's simply street, singular. Apparently, there's only one street in heaven. That would be fitting because there's only one way to God. Thus, there's only one street in heaven, and it's a street paved with pure gold. John mentions an important detail in verse 22. 
We talked about it this morning. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Here is the end of religion. The Jewish temple epitomized the do's and don'ts, the rules and rituals, the symbols and sacrifices of all religion. But in the end, none of that will be important any longer. When it's all said and done, all that will matter is the Lord and the Lamb. And verse 23 tells us, The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now keep in mind, our sun is not some little simple space heater. Our sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles. It's 108 times the size of the earth. It gives off heat and light through thermonuclear explosions that are constantly occurring on its surface. Its inner temperature is 35 million degrees Fahrenheit. And yet it's interesting to me that the presence and the glory of God will produce the same results as the sun. The radiance and the brilliance of our Lord Jesus will give off all the light and warmth and growth that we need during this time. If you have small kids, they'll love chapter 21, verse 25. There will be no night there. This means no bedtime. In heaven, a kid can stay up all night because there isn't any night. Night and darkness are actually symbols of sin. They won't exist in the new earth. Guys, every city has a main street. And the same is true in heaven. In chapter 22, John takes us cruising down the main drag in the New Jerusalem. The street leads to the throne of God. And beside the street flows a crystal river. Growing out of the center line of the golden street and overarching the river is the tree of life. Its fruit never goes out of season. There is healing in its leaves. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? God closed off access to the Garden of Eden and to the Tree of Life. And he dispatched an angel to guard its entrance. For if man had eaten of the Tree of Life in a fallen state, he would have lived forever separated and isolated from God. But now that he's been redeemed, now he can eat again this forever fruit. He's invited back to pluck the fruit and eat from the tree of life. Verse 3 tells us, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Notice there will be work in heaven, but our work will all be no sweat. God will take away the curse. On earth, work has been cursed. You never get out of your work all that you put into it. But in heaven, the opposite is true. The curse is lifted. So finally, work is fun and fulfilling. In heaven, the weeds are gone. Work is so much fun. Yeah, it's like taking a vacation. You don't want to go on vacation. You just want to stay at work. Verse 4 is the highlight of heaven. We're told they shall see his face. You remember Moses asked to see the glory of God. And he was granted his request. But God put limits on the privilege. In Exodus 33, verse 20 through 
23, he warns Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one man shall see me and live. God knew that mortal flesh would never survive his glory. And so he shielded Moses' eyes and showed him only his backside as he passed by. But one day, all that will change. Paul promises us in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in heaven we'll see face to face. Imagine, we'll see God up close and personal. We'll see him face to face. Verse 4, chapter 22, describes the one tattoo I won't mind getting. And his name shall be on their foreheads. In the end, the Lord will mark his children as his own. By the time we get to chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, John is blown away. He falls before an angel and he begins to worship. But the angel rebukes him, worship God. You see, the only angel that desires and accepts and receives worship is Satan. Rather than worship angels, we need to worship God. But the angel said to John in verse 10, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 4, the angel told Daniel, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. You see, Israel in the days of Daniel, they weren't ready to understand the prophecies that concerned the last days. They were all too distant into the future. But here, John is forbidden to seal the prophecies of this book. In other words, God wants this revelation understood. He wants us to grasp it and realize its implications. Verse 11 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Here is one of the most ominous warnings in all of Scripture. While on earth, there is always hope. There is always hope that you can change your status. If you are unrighteous, there is hope that you can become righteous But once a person passes from time into eternity, they forfeit that possibility to change. In Dante's Inferno, the author puts these words over the gates of hell. Those who enter here abandon all hope. What he's saying here is walk with Jesus now and you'll walk with him forever. But if you don't walk with Jesus now, and you pass into eternity apart from Jesus, you'll never walk with Him at all. In verse 12, Jesus says, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is God's last word. His first and last say to all mankind. A.W. Tozer, he writes, Man in the plan of God has been granted considerable say, but never is he permitted to utter the first word nor the last. That is the prerogative of the deity and one which he will never surrender to his creatures. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. 
He is the first word and the last word. Verses 14 and 15 say, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs. And notice the spelling here. It's D-O-G-S, not D-A-W-G-S. A vital distinction here if you're a Georgia football fan. And sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie, these are all the people that are on the outside looking in. You know, hey guys, if you're in school, and you're living your life for Jesus Christ, and because of it, you're not in the inner circle, you're not in the in crowd, and people have kind of pushed you away and alienated you a bit, understand that in the end... You're the ones that are going to be on the in crowd, and they're the ones that are going to be outside looking in. I would much rather be on the in crowd in heaven and have the others outside than to be on the outside looking in on them in heaven. So just remember, in eternity, you'll want to be among the in crowd, the in Christ crowd. When it comes to the new Jerusalem, You don't want to be on the outside looking in. John begins to draw his wonderful revelation to a close in verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. All the blessings of heaven are free, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice, even though they're free, you've still got to come and get them. God won't bring salvation to you or force it upon you. You've got to come on His terms and receive His blessing. You've got to come with a pure and sincere desire. Verse 18, John tells us, If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. No doubt John knew that he was the last of the original twelve apostles, and thus he was the last person authorized to write sacred scripture. And that's why he adds here this postscript. In Matthew chapter 18, remember, Jesus gave to the twelve apostles the authority to bind and loose. This meant it was up to them to establish faith and practice for the church. And this they did through the writings of the New Testament. All 27 books of the New Testament were written either by an apostle or under an apostle's direction and supervision. And since all the other apostles had died by this time, John knew that the canon of Scripture would conclude with him. I think of chapter 22, verse 18. Whenever I hear of some liberal who wants to cut and paste from God's Word, who wants to take this out or take that out and say, oh, this is inspired, but that's not inspired. Who do they think they are? You see, they're adding to, they're taking away from this book. And that's dangerous business. John put a cap on it. He knew that this was sacred scripture, that nothing was to be added to it, nothing was to be taken away. John was the last to write. Revelation was the last book. And therefore, he sealed it with the revelation. 
the liberals who preach these things, I like to call their theology a Dalmatian theology. In other words, they believe a spot here and a spot there and a spot here and a spot there. They just don't believe the whole thing. And yet John says that a Dalmatian theology is a damnation theology. Take away from the Bible and God will erase your name from the book of life. He'll bar you from the holy city. Your part will be taken away. That's serious business. Verse 20 records Jesus' closing words. I am coming quickly. And then John's response. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Jesus' final words to us. I am coming quickly. He's coming. He's coming soon. And I think we all could echo with John. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And there we have the Bible. 